We're to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained, obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Story, the, the story of Enoch is in Genesis chapter 5, and it's just a couple of verses long. It's, it's verses 21 through 24. And it just says, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And with the exception of a couple of genealogies in the Bible... The only other place that Enoch is mentioned is in the book of Jude, in uh, Jude 1, verses 14 through 15. It said, well, there's only one Jude, verse 14 through 15, and it says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, And to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So from that little verse in Enoch, I mean in Jude, we find out that Enoch was a prophet, because it says Enoch prophesied. Well, if the only thing about Enoch in the Bible was those three verses in Genesis, how did Jude know all this stuff that Enoch said? Well, actually, (laughs) did you ever think about that? (laughs) It it comes from an extra biblical source, a non-biblical book called the Book of Enoch. And even though it's not part of scripture except for this little quote from it, it was a book that was well known and respected in the early church. So it is from the, that book of Enoch that is not actually considered part of our scripture that Jude was quoting. And you can find the book of Enoch, out, translations of it, out on, the, out on the web. You know, just go out there and read them. Where is it held? I, the physical, I don't have any idea. Um, I, I don't know where it is, where the scrolls or whatever are now. But I know that I went out and looked at looked that quote up, you know, see if you could actually get to the book of Enoch from, from the web. But it would be like the Apocrypha, like those books that are in the middle, you know. Uh, is it part of the no, it's not. It's not even part of the Apocrypha. So it's, uh, it's completely extra biblical. So generally that means that either it was written by somebody who is not considered an apostle because a lot of these books, that book of Enoch, it pretends to be written by Enoch when it clearly was not, okay? So um, a lot of them got disqualified for that kind of a reason and others got, quote, disqualified from being part of scripture because there was some doctrinal problem, you know, in what they were saying. Some of them, you know, were copies of current fairy tales and, you know, you just, the people who put together the scripture really had to go through a whole bunch of scripture of, I'm sorry, of of these kind of scrolls and decide which ones were inspired and which ones weren't. 
So anyway, um, Jude quotes the book of Enoch, and from that we find out that Enoch was a a prophet. But why did the writer of Hebrews pick Enoch out as an example, as a star example of faith? Was, what was Enoch's act of faith? Well, the only thing we know about Enoch is that Genesis said Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and that's your clue. It's a clue that a life of faith is a life spent walking with God. Chapter 10 that we did uh, last week, finished last week, was full of references about the need for us to draw near to God and how God would respond to us. And this is an example of that kind of life. Enoch neither ran ahead of God nor lagged behind. He didn't trail along behind God trying to keep up, and he didn't run ahead of God doing it all himself. Enoch, it said, walked with God just like a friend walks. And that pleased God so much that he took Enoch up without having him die. He was like God's best friend. You know, can you imagine? What Can you imagine what they talked about? Can you imagine that kind of a friendship? We ought to be able to imagine that kind of a friendship because it's available to us. God told Enoch he would not die, and Enoch believed him. And God did what he said. God tells us we will not die. Do we believe him? Do we act on that promise? Do we act like we believe that? Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards those who seek him. God desires our presence, our listening. That is a picture of living faith. So what does it look like to walk with God? Isaiah gives you a hint. Look at Isaiah 33, 14, and 15. (coughs) Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously... And speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. That's a picture of somebody walking with God. And I think it's worth thinking about whether in our personal lives we shut our eyes from gazing on evil. You know, I don't think people think it's a sin to gaze on evil. But it's definitely not walking with God, if that's where your eyes are fastened. Aside from Adam and Eve and Enoch, the only other person in the Bible that the Bible specifically says walked with God was Noah. Hebrews 11.7, the writer picked Noah next. By faith... Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Well, it's obvious what Noah's act of faith was, right? He built a great big box, 
longer than a football field, almost half as wide and nearly five stories tall in the middle of a desert and covered it with pitch to make it waterproof. That, I would say, qualifies as an act of faith. Can you imagine finding the wood to do that? Can you imagine finding the wood to do that? There, because of the way um, some of the the verses are worded, many preachers teach that it took Noah like a hundred or a hundred and twenty years between the time that God told him to the time of the flood, and maybe it was so he could gather enough wood. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, that's definitely showing you truly believe God will do exactly what He says He will do. But equally important with Noah's action was his attitude. Did you catch that back in the verse, um, in verse 7, kind of at the beginning? It said he did it in reverence. Faith is worship in action. Faith is worship in action. And by this, by doing this, Noah became heir of the same righteousness that was reckoned to Abraham for his faith. And he became heir of the same grace that we're heirs to. It's not through our own purity that we inherit God's promises, but by our faith. By believing in God's promises, we become heirs of those promises. So what does it mean back in verse 7 that it says, Noah, by his faith and by his action, Noah condemned the world? I think Jesus gives us a clue to that. Look at Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42. Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see, the men of Nineveh repented when they heard the preaching of Jonah. And because of this, they will condemn our generation for its refusal to repent. The queen of Sheba traveled many miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And because of this, she will condemn our generation for not listening to Christ, and certainly the people of of Christ's generation. Noah's act of faith will condemn the world for its refusal to believe God's promises. Because basically, it proves it can be done. The writer of Hebrews then moves on to Abraham. Now, probably if you made that list I challenged you to last week of all the people of faith in the Bible that you would pick out, you probably didn't have Enoch on it, but you probably did have Abraham on your list. And that's because Abraham provides like more than one act of faith, right? He's already singled out in the scripture. So look at Hebrews 11.8 for the first part. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So his first act of faith right there was to leave Ur of the Chaldees, which was where his home was. That's over in the Babylonian region. And traveled to Canaan, which he possibly had never heard of before. 
Okay, I mean, it was really far, far way away. It was, they, there were caravan routes that went went over there, but Abraham had a home in Babylonia, you know, and he's told to to travel to Canaan. Well, he traveled. If you look closely at the scripture, he traveled with his extended family, including his father, whose name was Terah. And it never says in the Bible that God called Terah to leave his home, like he called Abraham to leave his home. And Terah may have actually been a hindrance to Abraham in following God's call because it says, it starts out saying that Terah led the family. Basically, Abram was following Terah till they got to Haran, which is kind of, if you think of the ark from the Ur of the Chaldees, it goes up and over to the promised land. Haran is kind of towards the top of that ark. And it's a lot like way short of Canaan. But it says that Terah stopped there and they settled there in Haran. And it was not until Terah died that God called Abram again and said, okay, you need to keep going. You know, So I suspect that Terah was a problem. We know that from Joshua 24 too that Terah was an idol worshiper. And so you wonder what was Abraham thinking in those intervening years? You know, was he struggling with his call of faith? Was he kind of torn between loyalty to his father? You know, obviously father his father probably needed him. He may have even been dying and and feeling the call of God. But finally, after Terah died, God promised Abram to make him a great nation, even though Sarah was barren. And God promised to make him a blessing and make him great. But what did that promise look like to Abram when he got to Canaan? You know, he left a solid building, a real home in Ur, in, the, in Babylon. He he again settled in Haran, presumably in a home, you know. He gets to Canaan, he's living in tents. He's God's asking him to just go drag his family around, drag his herds around this desert land with no home and no land of his own. Why was he willing to do this? Look at Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Notice the first phrase, by faith he lived. There it is again. Faith will always result in action. It, faith never is passive. It's fastening your eyes on God and doing what you see God doing. It's believing God's promises and acting accordingly. James 2.23 says Abraham was called a friend of God. And Abraham spoke with God just as Enoch and Noah had spoken to him. So what mysteries God must have revealed to Abraham for Abraham to know. Look at what it said in that verse 10. It said Abraham was wandering around in Canaan actually looking for a real city. A city God had told him he had built. He wasn't looking for heaven. He was looking for a city here on earth, built and governed by God. 
you have to think, did Abraham at that time realize the city he was looking for is in heaven at the moment? Did he know that the new Jerusalem won't come to earth until this earth passes away and the new heaven and the new earth are built? It doesn't sound to me like he knew, he knew that. He believed God literally. He acted on God's promises. God told Abraham that he and his descendants would be given all the land he could see. And Abraham believed him. And what's even more impressive to me is that after God told Abraham he was going to give him all the land that you can see, Abraham didn't go out and get it. Remember, Abraham was strong enough and powerful enough to have captured that land. Remember we read about how Abram went and defeated five kings when they kidnapped Lot? Abraham was powerful enough to take this land for himself. But he believed God's promise. And he believed that God was going to give it to him. God promised it to him. Abraham was in action, walking around, looking for it. But God had never said to him, this is it, Abraham, stop here. God never said to him, this is the city I told you about, Abraham. This is the city I'm giving to you. So Abraham... It is remarkable to me that that Abraham didn't just take the land. And that's kind of an equal and opposite danger of faith. The danger most of us have is being passive and not stepping out in faith. But it's equally dangerous to believe in a promise of God and go out and grab that promise rather than believing in God and waiting on God. Your greatest act of faith may be to wait for God's timing, even if it means that it looks like it's impossible for that faith to get for that promise to get fulfilled. I think that actually is an error that modern day Israel has made. Because they have taken their homeland. Because God promised it to them. And that's at the bottom of the Palestinian issue. Is that the Jews believe the Bible to be a title deed to Israel. To the exclusion of the Palestinians. And I'm not at all convinced that that's what the Bible says. I think the Bible says God will give them that land and it clearly says he's going to give it to them when the Messiah comes as king and conqueror. And that hasn't happened yet. And I think Israel has gone out and taken the land in the way. And I think you're seeing what would have happened if Abraham had done the same. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. Abraham wasn't the only one who waited in faith for the Lord to fulfill his promises. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Both Abraham and Sarah laughed when the Lord promised them a child in their extreme old age. But obviously, they both believed because by her faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive that child. 
Verse 13, all these, meaning Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, Abraham wandered throughout Canaan his entire life waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. Perhaps by this time he realized that the city of God was a future one, but it didn't make it any less real to Abraham. Even when Sarah died, Abraham's own words show he was still waiting for God to give him the land. Look at Genesis 23, verse 2 through 4. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Even at that point, Abraham still counted himself as a traveler. Hebrews 11, verse 14. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do we have the faith to count as nothing the riches of the world? If you win the lottery, would you count that as nothing? Do we have the faith that despises possessions on earth and looks forward to our treasures in the new Jerusalem? How real to us is the new heaven and the new earth? Do we really believe it when we say, thy kingdom come? Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. See, Abraham had been promised that it was through Isaac, the boy Isaac, not through a different son, but through Isaac, that all these promises would come. And yet when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, he did so without question. That's an example of how our faith has to be in God, not in the promise. Nothing is impossible for God. If God asks us to believe something or do something that will clearly make it impossible for God to fulfill a previous promise to us, we can step out in confidence because that kind of faith is exactly what God wants. And God will make his promise come true. You just don't understand how is the problem, you know? It's remarkable also that Abraham just figured that God could raise Isaac from the dead. If you read your Bible, you will notice that up to that point, God hadn't raised anybody from the dead. At least there's no record of it. I don't know why Abraham would think he would do it. Maybe that's just the only way Abraham could figure God could fulfill that promise. But Abraham was going to go do what God said and offer his son regardless of what that did to the promise. And when it says that Abraham received Isaac back in type, that word type is the word parabole, which is basically the word for parable. Abraham 
gave Isaac up for dead when he put him up on that on that altar. And God, when God gave it back to him, it was as if he had received Isaac back from the dead, as if he had been resurrected. You know, Hebrews eleven verse twenty. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, if you read the characters in the Bible, Isaac throughout his whole life was a weak and passive man. He was manipulated, he was pushed around, and yet here he is singled out as an example of faith. And this particular example is one of the more shameful times in Isaac's life. Because Jacob and Esau were twins. And while they were still in the womb, in Genesis 25-23, tells us that God told Isaac and Rebekah that the older twin was going to serve the younger twin. Well, Jacob was the younger twin. And therefore, according to the pro prophecy, Jacob should have been the one to inherit from Isaac, to be made head of the family at the time of Isaac's death. Well, the problem was, well, for one thing, Esau was a very instant gratification kind of guy. And he thought so little of his inheritance that one day, the Bible tells us, he actually traded it to Jacob for, for a bowl of stew. You know, yeah, sure, you can, be, you, can, you can be head of the family when dad dies. Just give me that bowl of stew. You know, well, that's despising that inheritance is what that is. You know, it's despising the inheritance of the firstborn. And the firstborn have always been special had a special place in God, in God's eyes, you know, and, and God had prophesied that Jacob would, Jacob, the younger twin would inherit. Well, the problem was Isaac liked Esau better than Jacob by a lot. And one day when Jacob was out, Isaac sent Esau out to make him his favorite meal. And Isaac planned when Esau came back to bless Esau and make him head of the family instead of Jacob in direct opposition to what God had said. Well, Rebecca, his wife, heard Isaac figuring this out, and she told Jacob, and she's, she's one of the ones that manipulated Isaac his whole life. She was a really not a good role model. But anyway, Rebecca, Rebecca got Jacob, who was her favorite, and dressed him up in hairy animal skins so he would smell like Esau and feel like Esau because Isaac was blind and old. And, and she made the stew the way Esau made it, you know, and gave it to Jacob, said, take it into your dad and ask him for the blessing. Well, it worked. And Isaac accidentally gave Jacob the blessing. Well, when Esau came in, he was really upset. He started crying and carrying on and trying to get his daddy to take it back and give the blessing to him instead and make him the, the head of the family. And this is where the act of faith comes in that the writers of Hebrew is talking about. Because there, at the very end of his life, Isaac finally stood up to somebody. And he stood up to his favorite son. And he said, nope. Isaac, at that moment, realized that God's will had been done. That prophecy had been fulfilled. Isaac believed God at that one moment, and he refused 
Esau. And he said, nope, I bless Jacob. I'll give you a blessing, but it's not going to be the same as the one that I gave to the head of the household. And that one incident, that one incident is the one the writer of Hebrews picked up and said, this is the act of faith that Isaac did. And then he, he, he actually picked up the, we're going we're gonna to read about it again in, in chapter 12. But if you go on to um, Hebrews 11.21, we go on to Jacob, Isaac's son. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and, Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now here again, the writer could have picked from so many other examples in Jacob's life. But, you know, then again, Jacob's life was spent in a great big struggle of faith. Jacob said he believed God, but Jacob rarely waited on God to do things in his own way and in his own time. Jacob was one of those guys that always runs ahead of God, you know, and goes out and figures out how to make it work. And he, okay, so he's the one that cooperated with his mama in putting, dressing up in the animal skins, right? Well, that wasn't the first tricky dicky thing he ever did, you know, and he continued that through his whole life. If God promised him the inheritance of the older son, Jacob could not connive to trick his father into giving it to him. If God told Jacob to read, and of course, you know, Jacob had to run away from Esau after that, so Esau wouldn't murder him. So when God told Jacob to return, it was, you know, okay to return to Esau, that everything was cool, he could go back home to Canaan. Did Jacob just get on his camel and go back home? No, he Connived. He, he started figuring out, well, how am I going to make Esau love me and not kill me on sight when I get there? And, well, I'll just start sending him presents on ahead of me. And, and then I'm going to let my wives and my kids go and see him slaughter them next. And, you know, I mean, he was such, such a conniver, you know. He, he never actually trusted God to do what he would do. But at the end of his life, we finally see a man of faith. Notice what he's doing. He's worshiping. I picked out a verse, I think, at the, in the, at the end of the last lesson to remind you that to look for worship as you went through chapter 11, because an act, a life of faith is a life of worship. So he's worshiping, and he tells Joseph to carry his bones back to Canaan, to the promised land, because he believes that God will give the land to his people. And in, his, in blessing his grandson, he gives his testimony, his witness to the faithfulness of God. It is at, at this point when he is dying that he finally stands up and says, you know what? God does what he says he will do. Look in Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16. Then Jacob blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Finally, Jacob recognizes that God has been his shepherd all along, and in that one blessing he acknowledges that it was not his own cunning and conniving that saved him and provided for him. It was God all along and what God had done. This is faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews picked that incident out. 
and put it in this chapter of faith. As imperfect and unlovely as Isaac and Jacob were, notice that God delights to be called by their name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have said, I am the God of Abraham and stopped there, you know, but no. It was the, their faith, the faith of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that perfected them, that made them perfect in God's sight, and God loved them. Hebrews eleven twenty two, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, Joseph was great in the land of Egypt. He could have had a burial of a pharaoh, but he believed the promise of God was a greater gift than all the rich burials that Egypt could give him. And when and he asked that when the people of Israel left Egypt, that they take his bones with them to the promised land. Why? Because he believed that someday God will, would fulfill that promise. There was no evidence at that point that Israel that the Israelites would ever leave Egypt. They were happy, well cared for, well fed, right? But but Joseph believed that someday they would go back to the land of Canaan, to the, to the land that God said they would inherit. Verse 23, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this was not an act of faith by Moses. This was an act of faith by his parents, Amram and Jochebed. God apparently told them to hide Moses even though it would put their own lives at risk. If they got caught, they would be punished, you know. Um, and they were willing to trust God rather than fear death at the hand of Pharaoh. So by now, you should start to see a pattern. Faith is belief in the unseen. Faith is belief that promises will be fulfilled. And viewed in light of that faith, all your actions will make perfect sense. Faith in action is always rational. It may look irrational to those on the outside who don't have faith. But to the one who believes, faith always results in rational action. It makes sense. Therefore, Amram and Jochebed took that basket and waterproofed it so it would float because they believed God was going to save their baby. Because they believed God, they sent Miriam, his sister, out to watch and see what would happen because they figured something was going to happen. The baby wasn't just going to sit there, you know. Verses 24 through 26, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, this is an interesting insight into Moses' motives. We do know Moses was well aware of his Hebrew birth because he was raised by his mother as his nurse in the court of the Pharaoh's daughter. But it's from this passage in Hebrews that we learn that, according, at least according to Jewish tradition, Moses refused to be known as the Pharaoh's daughter. And it's also from this passage in Hebrews, we learn that Moses saw the idol worship of Egypt and the fleshly indulgence in Egypt as the sin that it really was. And how interesting, I think, here in this quote from Hebrews, is that the disgrace and persecution that Moses suffered because of his stand is called disgrace for the sake of Christ. 
Moses didn't know anything about Christ. But his suffering for his people's sake was counted as suffering for the sake of Christ. And that reminded me, you know, of that verse in Matthew 25, verses 37 through 40, where people come and stand before Christ and he says, well, come on in. You fed me when I was hungry and clothed me when I was naked and came to visit me when I was in prison. And Moses is going to stand there and say, when did I ever meet you? He says, well, when you did it for the least of my people, you did it for me. You know? Hebrews 11, 27 through 29. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. That phrase in verse 27, that first verse where it says he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. If you think about it, that could be a little confusing because there's only two times recorded in scripture that Moses left Egypt. The first time was when he killed that Egyptian, remember, and he fled to to Midian and stayed there for 40 years. Well, it says at that time, Moses fled because he feared Pharaoh. So it can't be that time, all right? The only other time recorded in scripture, Moses fled was after the Passover, right? And that's when Pharaoh threw them out. There was no fear involved then. Pharaoh wanted them to go. So what does it mean that by faith, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger? He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. I think it's a spiritual leaving of, Israel, of Egypt. I think it's when Moses, as an adult, rejected Egypt and said, I will not be called the Pharaoh's daughter's son. I choose to be identified with the Hebrew people. Can you imagine how mad that would have made Pharaoh sliding his daughter like that? After everything she's done for him, I mean, you can just imagine. <laughs> you can imagine the conversation, right? <laughs> everything that was available. Exactly, exactly. I think that is, is when he, quote, left Egypt and without fear of the king's anger. He did it in spite of what the reaction of Pharaoh would be. When God said he was sending the destroying angel at, at the Passover for the tenth, for that last plague, how Moses, you know, must have been tempted to just pick up the Israelites and run for it, okay? But he stayed, and he trusted that by just painting this lamb's blood on the door, that was going to save the firstborn of Israel from what was going to be a devastating curse. And how frightened the Hebrew slaves must have been when they're out in the desert. Egyptian army is behind them. The Red Sea, you know, the wind blows. Can you imagine the wind that had to blow to part the Red Sea and the pile of water on both sides? Would you like to be first out? <laughs> you know? Think of the fear. It took faith on their part to step into that seabed. But they did, and their faith saved them, 
and condemned the Egyptians who came behind them. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, verse 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Well, the story of Rahab and Jericho is a classic one. The very first thing Joshua did when the Israelites, you know, after they crossed the Jordan, went in, they, um, in fact, he may have done this before they even crossed the Jordan. I think he sent two spies ahead. And they went, they, they were supposed to go to Jericho, which was like the largest fortified city in the, in the land. So this is like the capital. This is really a big deal. And these two spies were supposed to scout it out and figure out what kind of military weakness there was so that they could come up with a battle plan. Because at that point, God had not yet shared what his battle plan was going to be. So the spies, <laughs> so the spies snuck into the city incognito, hid in the place where they thought they were most likely not to be noticed, in a brothel. Okay? Well, they apparently kind of stuck out anyway because it tells us that the king's men were doing a door-to-door -door search looking for these two guys. They didn't know where they went, but they knew they came into the city. Well, even the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, knew that these men were Israelites. No matter how they disguised themselves, they must not have done a very good job. But the prostitute, her story is so interesting because the whole city was a buzz about the Israelites. They had been conquering people and winning battles miraculously, you know, as they had come across the desert. And the people of Jericho were rightfully scared. Okay, this was, even though they were in a fortified city, they, you know, they had good reason to be scared. And the prostitute told the spies, she said, you know what? I know that your God can do what you say he's going to do. I know that your God is more real than the idols that we worship. I know that your God can deliver this city into your hands and I will help you escape the king's men if you promise me that when your God delivers the city into your hands, you will spare me and my family. And so the spies said, it's a deal. You save us, we'll save you. Said, what you do is, is when we start to attack, you hang a scarlet thread out your, win out your window because Rahab's house was built into the wall of the city. One side of her house was the wall of Jericho. And so they said, just hang a scarlet thread out your window. We'll see it. We'll let you, your house stand. And so she said, okay, I'll do that. And so she hid the men on her roof under bushels of flax. That's like this big, it's like corn stalks, okay? It's a, it's a dry, you use it to spin linen out of, actually. And she hid them on the roof. And when the king's men got to her door and said, have you seen these men? She said, yeah, they were just here and they went that away. And, and, and they already left the city and they're out in the country somewhere. And so the king's men gallop off out in the country looking for the spies. And Ahab lets the spies down out her window up over the wall and they make it safely back to the Israelites. Well, unbeknownst to Rahab, the prostitute, and the spies, God's battle plan involved the wall of the city falling down flat. That's part of her house. 
Well, you know the story. The Israelites marched around Jericho every day for six days, and on the seventh day they marched around seven times. And when the priests blew their trumpets and the people gave a great shout, the wall of Jericho fell flat, but Rahab's house was spared. And Rahab became one of the five women named in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus was not too proud to be the son of a prostitute because that prostitute was made acceptable to God by her faith. Acts 10, 34 and 35. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him. Our faith is all that is required to us. Faith shows itself in our actions. Faith that is more than words. Faith that stakes everything on God's faithfulness. Faith did not make the walls of Jericho fall down. Faith prepared the way for the Lord to make the walls of Jericho fall down. Faith proclaimed to everybody who was watching from the walls, and you can imagine the people of Jericho standing on top of the wall, laughing and throwing things at the Israelites as they went around. You know, their faith proclaimed to the people of Jericho, this is being done by the hand of our God. That's what God's about. Okay, your faith is not what makes things happen. Your faith simply proclaims to those who are watching that God is making this happen. And that's a very important distinction to God. Hebrews eleven thirty two. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. All of those men listed in that verse stepped out in faith. All of those men risked their lives on the basis of the promise of God. And I bet that with the exception of David, Samuel, and maybe Gideon, maybe, the rest of those guys were probably not on your list of the ten top faith guys in the Bible. Okay, You probably don't even know what some, who some of them are. The story of Gideon, you probably do. Gideon is in Judges 6 through 8. And, and Gideon... Gideon lived in Israel at a time when it was attacked by a whole coalition of armies. And an angel of the Lord just kind of like appeared to Gideon while he was doing his chores and said, Gideon, I want you to get an army together and go out and fight these guys. And Gideon said, uh-huh. Um, just in case I'm imagining this, could we just do a little test? And, and, and he said, I tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to take this fleece of this sheep and I'm going to lay it out on the ground overnight. And tomorrow morning when I wake up, if the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll know this is not just something I ate for lunch. Okay? This is not a figment of my imagination. I'll know it's really you. And that's not a bad thing to do. God's telling you to do. You think God's telling you to do something really, really crazy? You know, risk your life, risk somebody else's life. Some, you know, something crazy that doesn't make sense to you, it is scriptural to test that in some way. If not by a physical way, and this is acceptable, you know, certainly by consulting others. 
who are spiritually mature and asking for their prayer and insight, you know? So this was Gideon's version of the test. And the next morning he got up, the ground was bone dry, and he just like wrung out a whole bowl of water out of that fleece. And then Gideon, of course, this is a scary proposition. This is a coalition of armies. Gideon is not exactly looking forward to doing this. He said, now, Lord, don't be mad at me, but could we do this just one more time? This time, it might have been just an accident, Lord. Maybe I just, you know, somebody spilled something on the fleece. So this time, do it the other way around. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and then I'll be cool. And so the next morning, that's exactly what it was. The ground was sopping wet, and the fleece was dry. So now Gideon has no choice but to raise an army, right? He goes out, and actually the Lord gathers, you know, an army gathers, and it's 32,000 fighting men. And the Lord says, Gideon, that's too many men. He says, Gideon. You just go out there and you announce to everybody who's out there, if anybody wants to go home, they can just go right on home. So Gideon does that. 22,000 people went home. (laughs) That only left 10,000, a third of his army. God said, Gideon, still too many people. Take all 10,000 of those guys down to the river. Let them have a drink of water. Any of them that kneel down and, you know, scoop up the water, send them home. Any of them that just kind of kneel down and lap it up like a dog and stay alert, those are the guys you want. 9,700 scooped up the water. It left 300 men as the army for Gideon against the coalition of armies that were attacking Israel. Why was that? Because God wanted to show the people of Canaan and the people of Israel that it was not through the might of Israel that this was being done. It's about God. And it's about believing that God can do what he says he will do. And of course, Gideon went out, and it was very much like Jericho. He and the 300 men surrounded the enemy camp, made a bunch of noise, and the enemy was thrown into confusion by the Lord, and they ran away. And Israel was saved. Barak, his story is in Judges 4 and 5. He was called also to lead an army to deliver Israel from her enemies, and he did it in faith based solely on the vision of someone else. And that someone else was a woman. That someone else was Deborah the woman judge of Israel. And the Lord told her to send Barak with an army to fight for Israel, to defend them. She called in Barak, said, this is what the Lord told me to do. He said to send you. Barak said, I'm out of here. I'll do it. And he went. And Israel was saved. Samson, of course, you know him. He's in the list, his story. His story is in Judges 13 through 16. But if you read his life, his life was pitiful. His life was a complete life of denial. He was hugely gifted by God, greatly gifted. But he consistently misused and despised his gifts. He, did, he was God's original juvenile delinquent. You know, he just did whatever he felt like. And God never forgot him. And finally, at the end of his life, when Samson was in chains imprisoned, ridiculed, and had his eyes gouged out by the Philistines. He prayed. 
He finally humbled himself and prayed to God. And, and God said, what is it, Samson? And Samson said, they've chained me between the two columns that support their temple. Please let me have revenge on these people who gouged my eyes out and let me die when they die. And God honored his prayer. And that's exactly what happened. Jephthah is another unusual character. That may be somebody you never even heard of. His story is in Judges 11 and 12. He was another profligate like Samson. He was the son of a prostitute and a juvenile delinquent who were never married. He grew up, as you can imagine, just like his daddy, a juvenile delinquent. He was run out of town. He formed a gang on the outskirts of town. And he would have stayed there, except that Israel came under attack again. And they needed somebody to lead an army for them. Well, he was the best fighting man around. So they went to him and asked him to lead their army. And he said, well, I will on one condition, and that is that if I am successful, you make me king, you make me leader, judge, you know, over, over the... Well, they must have been pretty desperate because they said, okay. Well, Jephthah then did a very foolish thing. He, he apparently had faith in God. That's a good thing. But he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please be with me when I go into battle. And if you deliver me, and deliver Israel from the hands of her enemies, whatever comes out of the front door of my house, first, when I return, I will offer as a burnt offering to you. Well, the good news is the Lord delivered Israel and Jephthah. The bad news is the first thing out of his house was his only daughter. Well, the Lord never allowed, ever allowed his people to sacrifice their children to him like the idol worshipers to Molech used to sacrifice their, their children. That was an abomination to the Lord. And so, but the Lord does consider the firstborn of everything, animal and man, to be special and holy, consecrated to him. It is told to us in Exodus 13, look at uh, verses 10 through three, 13, Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance as it's appoint, at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord, but, the, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a land. A lamb, that means don't kill your donkey, you need your donkey, kill the lamb instead, okay, in place of the donkey. That mean, that's what redeem means. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Okay, they had to actually redeem their sons. God never allowed them to sacrifice their sons. In, they would just, there was a set amount of feed that they would pay into the treasury, and that would redeem their son. Okay, well, the problem was there never was a provision made for the redemption of a daughter. So apparently the solution the Israelites came to was that Jephthah's daughter would have to remain an unmarried virgin for the rest of her life. This, as you know, would have been a horrible sentence for a young maiden, for any young girl, you know, but also especially among Hebrew women 
whose value was measured by the number of children they had, right? So this was a big, big deal and a hard sentence for her to have to serve because of her father's foolish vow. But that's apparently what happened. Look at Judges 11, 35 through 40. When Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. That's, I think, an unusual story for the writer of Hebrews to single out as an example of faith in action. But clearly, Jephthah and his daughter both feared the Lord and willingly sacrificed everything that was important to them rather than go back on Jephthah's promise. Did you have a question? Why did Goliath seem to go away for two months? Why she had to go away for two months to grieve? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe to be able to do it, get it over with, huh? Do it cheerfully, you know? I don't know. There must be more to what she needed to do, you know? I don't, it doesn't really say, and I do not believe he killed his daughter. I don't, I just don't believe the Lord would have asked that, you know? And from the wording there, it sounds to me like the sentence was she had to remain a virgin her whole life, you know? They made a great big deal out of that. So we'll see. Anyway, David and Samuel's deeds are too numerous to count. Their faith is legendary, and their actions were governed by their constant assurance in God. And who can name all the prophets and all they suffered because they believed in God far more than in man? Continue in Hebrews, verse 32. What more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We've studied the prophets, and we've seen how much of their vision and their prophecy related to the millennial kingdom, right? And to the new heaven and the new earth. Huge, huge, huge chunks of the prophecy. 
talk about that, and as well as the eternal order. Why would anyone do things like Jephthah and his daughter did in this life if they didn't look forward to a reward in heaven, if they didn't really believe that there was more to it than this life? Some of the people we've read about today received their promised rewards. Noah was saved from the flood. Samson had revenge on the Philistines. Joshua defeated Jericho. But were these earthly things really the things these people were looking for? Was this the great reward that they hoped for? Of course not. We enjoy our earthly blessings, but our hope is in God and in the promise of life everlasting with him. All of us, from Adam to now, look forward to the Messiah and the coming of a new heaven and a new earth. God has provided something better than the things of this world, and we all will see that promise coming together. We will not be made perfect without Moses and Samson and Jephthah and all those folks right by our side, and they won't be made perfect without us right by their side. We're all going to see the promise of God come together. And it will happen on the day when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven.